Father, we thank you so much for the gift of music, for, for, this, for this medium that you have created by which you have ordained us to give you praise. How often do we read that we are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that we are to make a, a joyful noise into the Lord? How often do we read about God's people in your word coming to you through the, the gift of music to bring you honor and glory? We, we thank you for that opportunity this morning. And, and now we thank you for the opportunity to again open your word, by which you have made yourself known, by which you have sought to communicate with us that we might hear and, and receive and believe and follow you so that we can give you glory in a manner pleasing in your sight, so that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. So, Father, we pray now, that as we open your word and we read your word and, and you have entrusted me to communicate the meaning and what's going on here, I pray, Father, that you might be pleased both with the proclamation and the application, both with the, the hearing and the doing. May you receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, if you will take your Bible, join me again in Luke 15. Luke chapter 15, this chapter... Uh, we are making our way through it, and it is about the joy that God takes in saving sinners. And if there's anything that we should be uh, focusing on, uh, it is you know, what God has said in His Word about saving sinners. We are talking about the parable of the prodigal son. It's, it's normally called the parable of the prodigal son. I don't know if I'd name it that, but uh, that's what we, we've commonly uh, known it to be. It is... Probably the most familiar of Jesus' parables. It's also probably the most misunderstood of Jesus' parables. It is simple, but it is deep. Uh, it is uh, beautiful in its, uh, just its, in its simplicity. It's forsaken in its richness and in its depth. And that's why this is week two in this parable, and that's why this won't be the last week in this parable. So let's pick up where we left off, but first let's read the parable again in its entirety, beginning in verse 11. This is what Luke writes uh, through the Holy Spirit. He says, And he, Jesus, said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, he, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, 
and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. <clears throat> you know, there's so much to absorb in, uh, I guess, what, 22 verses? We've got joy, we've got repentance, we've got love, we've got forgiveness. But we also have pride, foolishness, obstinance, self-righteousness mercilessness, and the depth of each of these different things becomes more clear and more vivid when we consider why Jesus told this parable. And that's a question we're unpacking slowly as we go through the parable. But the key to it is in who he was telling the parable to. And who were they? Remember, it was the grumbling scribes and Pharisees who were hearing this. It was the self-righteous who fancied themselves religious assuming that God was looking upon them favorably because they were playing the religious game. They, they, were, they were better than those who were not like them. So they hated Jesus and they grumbled against Jesus. And remember why, verse 2, because this man receives sinners and he eats with them. This man receives sinners. And, and last week we saw what a sinner looks like. Uh, the prodigal son is unmistakably, undoubtedly, unquestionably the picture of a sinner, and he's a vile sinner at that. Remember that prodigal does not mean, it's not a reference to his lostness, it's not a reference to the fact that he returns, it's a reference to him being a spendthrift, being a wasteful, ungrateful, thankless, greedy, selfish person, wasteful of his father's love, wasteful of his father's generosity. And his possessions. And we saw that in verses 11 through 16. He shamelessly demanded his father, give him his stuff. Give me my stuff. His share of the estate. Except that his father was still alive. So basically he was saying, I wish you were dead. I want what's coming to me now. He shamelessly demanded his stuff. He shamelessly left for a distant land, Gentile land, a Jew willingly going to defiled places where he not only wasted everything on profligate, immoral living, but when it was all gone, instead of repenting of his mistakes, he multiplies his mistakes by trying to fix things himself. He hires himself out. He glues himself to that land. He attaches himself to that land. He 
He handles and feeds pigs, which was an unconscionable, revolting thing for a Jew to do. Imagine the scribes and Pharisees hearing this. So revolting. Touching and handling that which was unclean. He even found himself so desperate that he wished he could eat what the pigs were eating. Uh, No one was helping him. So the prodigal son is the very picture of a prideful, selfish, rebellious sinner. The very picture of the kind of people Jesus was associating with. The very kind of people the religious establishment wanted nothing to do with. He's the picture of a man who had the scribes and Pharisees grumbling because Jesus dared to fellowship with such a person. And where we left off at verse 16, this kind of sinner is absolutely spiritually bankrupt. He's living a pitiable present. He has a hopeless future. Pitiable because of his own depravity. Hopeless because that's what happens to the the depraved. They die and then they get judged. So the prodigal son is the very picture of one with a heart wanting nothing to do with God. Wanting nothing to do with his father. Which in our case is the father. This is the heart of, of all who attach himself or herself to the world. Instead of the divine provision God has made through his son Jesus Christ. This sinner is helpless. The prodigal, verse 16, is hopeless. He is what a sinner looks like. But in verse 17, the father returns to the story. He returns in the mind of the son, the son who wished him dead. The prodigal had done everything he could to separate himself from his father. He rebelled against his father. He moved away from his father as far away as he could get. The same way many do today. Beloved, many do the same today. People go to great lengths, many people do, to avoid any thought of God. They don't want to think about God. They don't want to hear about God. That's why many don't ever come inside of a church. They don't want anything to do with anything having to do with a church. They want all religious discourse abolished, many do, especially if it relates to that which is authentically Christian, that which is biblical, that which extols Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear it. Why? Because they don't want to be confronted with their own accountability to a God who they know exists. You know, many even try to deny that there is a God, but they know God exists. Everybody knows God exists. Their conscience affirms this to them. They may shout with all their voice that there's not a God, but David in the Psalms writes, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And why is he a fool? Because he is denying what he knows in, his, in himself to be true. Um, Paul in Romans 1 says that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They, they, they know the truth, but they press it down as far as they can. They press it down out of sight and out of mind. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because that which is known about God is evident within them. That's what Paul says. It's evident within them. We are all created in the image of God. We are all created with the innate knowledge that there is a God. The, the, Paul goes on, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in what has been created. People know within themselves that God is real. They, they know within themselves that He is the one who is eternally powerful. And I'm just using Paul's words here. That His divine nature, the things are clearly seen, and yet so many 
rebel. So many want nothing to do at all with God like the prodigal son. Wanted nothing to do with his father. And in his desperation, he tries to fix his own problems, but that didn't work. So in verse 17, But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. And he has nothing left. Severe famine coupled by his own idiocy. He has nothing left. No one's giving him anything. Nothing's changing. And the result, if nothing changes, is a horrible death. He's destined to die destitute, hungry, and in shame. So in that desperation, he comes to the end of himself. He comes to the end of himself. And coming to the end of yourself, beloved, coming to the end of your self-sufficiency, coming to the end of thinking that you can help you, that's when you come to your senses. You know, I've, I've seen religious surveys where people who go to conservative evangelical churches say that their favorite Bible verse is the one that says, God helps those who help themselves. Well, that has more to do with Republican politics than it does the Word of God because that's not in the Word of God. God does not help those who help themselves. What the Bible says is that God helps those who realize they can't help themselves. This prodigal came to his senses. And that's how repentance happens. This is what repentance begins to look like. We saw what a sinner looks like, but this is where we begin to see in this parable what repentance looks like. By coming to an honest, <coughs> an honest assessment of yourself, realizing that you are spiritually destitute, and you are helpless, and you are hopeless, and like the prodigal, no one is helping you, or can help you, or give you anything, no resources to tap into to fix the problem. There is no 12-step program that gets rid of your sin. There are no books to buy. There is no TV preacher to send money to. And there's no amount of weekly attendance that in a church, by the way, either, that can fix this. You cannot fix yourself. The prodigal was going to starve. You have to come to an honest assessment of yourself that you will die for lack of the bread of life. You will die in your sins. You will die hungry for, for that righteousness that you cannot attain. This is how repentance happens. The prodigal son, longing for pig's food, began to think about life and what it used to be like back home. And all of a sudden, it wasn't that bad. And the hired men lived better. They lived much better than he was now. That tells us something, by the way, about the character of his father. You know, he seems to have held a lot against his father, but his father was one who the, the prodigal even knew. His father paid the hired men who were low on the social scale enough, more than enough to get by. He was generous. They had more than enough bread. He, he, more generous than he had to be in that culture, by the way. He showed kindness. He showed compassion. He showed love. You know, we read earlier from Romans 13 that these commandments in Scripture are summed up with you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus didn't make that up in the New Testament. That's actually from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. 
the law of Moses, Israel was commanded by God, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So based on who God is, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's one of those providential ironies that just five verses earlier, the Israelites are commanded in, in Leviticus 19.13, that hired men were to be paid the same day they worked. Why? Because they were so low on the social scale, they were so poor, that they needed the food that day to eat. They needed to, to, to feed themselves. They had families to feed. They needed, and, and so it was unloving to withhold money from them. They needed, if you want to love your neighbor as yourself, you give them the money they earned today. And that's what it says in Leviticus. And yet the prodigal son is longingly looking at this pig's food, and he remembers how his father went above and beyond for even his hired men. They had more than enough bread. This sinner had certainly not come across anyone like that in his travels. Remember what it says in verse, uh, what is it, 16? That no one was giving anything to him. So he compares his current situation to the, the life he had with his father, and he he knows now how unworthy he is. That when you come to your senses, you begin to realize how unworthy you are. He knows that, that he has treated his father like trash. He knows that he has abused his father's generosity and wasted what he's been given. He knows that he has made his own life a dumpster fire. So at his lowest point, at the end of himself realizing there's nothing he can do about his own hopeless predicament. Here he is, at his lowest point, being drawn back toward his father as he begins to see his father with clear eyes. As he begins to see what a mess he is with clear eyes. He begins to see his father for who his father really is. Good, kind, merciful, and forgiving. And of course, surely he couldn't expect to be received back. Not after what he had done. Not after how he had shamed himself. Especially not after he, how he had shamed his father. Remember, this is an honor culture. It's an honor culture and it's a shame culture. And he had shamed his father in the community. To have a son do this would be shameful to the father in the community. But life hiring himself out to the people of a distant land, life in the world and of the world was no life at all. That's what he found out. Being a hired man of his father would be better. A hired, being one of them would be better, significantly better than this. There was no alternative. At least if he went back, he might live. And that's how he was supposed to think. That's how, being a first century Jewish man, he would have been conditioned to think. Again, an honor culture, a shame culture. And he'd shamed his father, he'd shamed himself. It would be unconscionable for him or for anyone else to think he would go back and be honored. For him to go back and be accepted. So it was right for him to think, when I go back, I will be shamed, and rightly so. It was right for him to think, I will, I will go back and I will not be treated as a son anymore. I will be treated as lesser. You know, he, he couldn't just say, I'm sorry, 
and it all be over. He had no reason to expect that to happen. He 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 would not be able to you know pass go and collect two hundred dollars and then land on chance and get a get out of jail free card and all that stuff. That wasn't going to happen for him, and he knew it. He would have to be shamed. He would have to be humiliated. He would have to 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 throw himself down at his father's mercy. And one day, his father might decide to be nice to him based on the work that he did. But he had no guarantee of that. And if so, good for him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have been listening to Jesus. And as I said last week, they would have been shocked, first of all, at how the son asked for his stuff in the first place. They would have been further shocked by the father's willingness to give it to him and not simply disown him and disassociate with him entirely. But when they hear this part, this is the part they would have agreed with. At least the first part they would have agreed with. To to the religious establishment, the way to be right before God was to work for it. to, To be a good Jew. To keep the law. And of course, not just the law, but the traditions of the elders. You had to do that in order to, to be a good Jew. So, while they would have been shocked and repulsed by the son in the first part of the parable, his response here makes sense to them. There's nothing controversial about this part, because if he wants to go back, he, he's going to be shamed, and he deserves it. He would have to be humbled, and he deserves it. And it would be right for the father to even treat him badly upon his return. And note... There's not even a hint that the prodigal son has any hope for better than this. There's no hint in the text that he hoped somehow, some way, someday he might make up for what he'd done. Not, there's not a hint that, that he would ever expect to have real reconciliation with his father. But even so, he comes to his senses and, and now he realizes where he stands, where his life is heading, and it prompts him to act. And that's how repentance works. Repentance isn't just acknowledging I'm a sinner. That's not repentance. Repentance is coming to your senses and then those senses compelling you to act. You know, there's a great difference between those two things. Many people will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not believe in you? Did we not do this? Did we not do that? They'll say, you know, we were sinners. I, you know, and we walked an aisle one day. We got baptized one day. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because why? Your repentance never compelled you to act. It wasn't real repentance. That's, repentance moves you to act. Acknowledging you're a sinner will still leave you bound for hell. But acknowledgement accompanied by action will put you through the narrow door that leads to life. seeing the trajectory of your life and moving away from that direction. And the only direction we can move move in that isn't the trajectory of sin and death is in the, the movement toward the Father. Moving toward God the Father. And here, the prodigal's recognition of his shame does him to do what? It leads him to do what? Moves him back toward his Father. In verses 18 and 19, he decides to go back. He begins rehearsing. Rehe- you know, have you ever been in a situation where you start rehearsing what you'll say? Or the prodigal starts rehearsing what he's going to say. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Note how seriously he views himself. 
he has sinned against heaven. Remember, beloved, when we sin against other people, we're also, we, we sin against God most of all. And Ezra 9, 6 says this, O oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. The prodigal knew his guilt was piled up even to the heavens. He'd sinned against heaven. He didn't seek, as we so often do, he didn't seek to minimize the damage he'd done. He didn't seek to, to, to try to put a, a, a whipped cream and a cherry on top of his sin to make it look a little bit better than it was. He knew the damage he'd done to himself. He knew the damage he'd done to his father. And now he knew the only way out was not in the world. The only way out of his pitiable present and his hopeless future was to surrender all of his personal autonomy. To basically become like a slave. To surrender all that he was, all that he had which was nothing, and all that he ever would be to his father. His sin had ruined his life. To describe him in some ways, the Apostle Paul describes our sinful state. He was a son of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. He was alienated from his father, Colossians 1.21. He was excluded from the life of the father because of the hardness of his heart, Ephesians 5.18. And he's willing to do this. He's willing to go back with no guarantee he'll ever be more than a hired hand. And by the way, he really doesn't even have a guarantee the father will accept him to do that. After all, he has wished his father dead. He would expect that they would consider him dead. And he's so prideful as to demand what was not rightfully his, but now he has to be humbled to the point that he knows he's unworthy to be considered even for a fraction of his father's goodness. But that's what repentance looks like. To recognize yourself as so unworthy that any act of goodness on the part of God is something you don't deserve. Repentance recognizes the unworthiness of the one repenting. And this morning, can you look at your copy of the Word of God and can you bow your head before the one who created the heavens and the earth and can you honestly say to God, you have repented like this? Have you realized the depths of your own depravity? This morning, can you say, that, that I have come to the end of myself. And second, have you, have, have you repented like this? Have you turned from where you were heading to go to the presence of God? Know, beloved, that if you have, if you have repented, it's not because of you. It's not because of you. Before we wind up things this morning, I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy. I don't often ask you to turn a second place. I usually read it. But I want you to see this with your own eyes because this is so powerful to me. Um, 2 Timothy, Paul knows he's about to die. He's in Roman custody. He's about to die on account of the, of the gospel, on account of his faith, on account of preaching the gospel. And he's writing this letter to Timothy, who is this, this pastor. He's, he's a pastor in Ephesus. He's struggling. 
you know, he writes first Peter, he writes first Timothy so that we might know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. He writes second Timothy because things aren't going that well for Timothy. And well, Paul writes these last words, and what does Paul tell him? Look at beginning chapter 2, verse 22. What does he tell Timothy? Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. We see that phrase, come to the senses again, but I want you to see, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Beloved, this morning, you need to know that if you've repented, it's ultimately not because of you. It's because God granted you the gift of repentance. Now, repentance is something we do, but it's only something we can do if God gives it to us. Why? Because remember, by nature, we are children of wrath. By nature, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and a dead man can't do squat. Lazarus couldn't come forth until God gave him life again to come forth out of that tomb. Uh, and likewise, there's not one of us who can move toward God without the Father drawing us, without Him making us alive, and when He makes us alive, He grants to us repentance. And He grants to us the gift of faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Have you come like this? Have you come compelled by the power of God to God at the end of yourself? That's what repentance looks like. It's a desperate changing of your disposition of God. It's a desperate regime change. You know, that word, that phrase regime change has been thrown around in the past 15, 20 years with regards to U.S. foreign policy. But has there been a regime change in your life whereby God empowers your arms to take the crown off of your own head because a crown of thorns was put on His Son's head? Who is the real king in your life this morning, beloved? Is it you or is it God? This is what repentance demands. It demands an answer to that question and it demands the right answer. And maybe you are thinking... I've done my time. I've, I'm setting my. I'm, be, I'm, I'm better than most. I've, I, I don't need to change that much. Baloney. God says you'd better repent. God says you must repent. Maybe you're thinking, I want to change, but I just can't change. I've, tried, I've made so many mistakes, I know I'm heading down the wrong path, and I can't stop. Nothing seems to work. I can't stop. I want to change, but I can't. And that's right. You can't. But when God makes you alive and His Spirit dwells within you, Ephesians 3.20 says, He is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than you can ask or imagine according to the power that works in us. His power which works in us. That's repentance. 
That's the power God gives you to repent. But you've got to come to your senses. I mean, you'll only come to your senses if He grants to you this. Look at the order of things in 2 Timothy again. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. God granted the prodigal son repentance. He began to acknowledge the truth in his heart and he came to his senses and he moved back toward his father. You know, we're only halfway. We're not even, if we go by verse count, we're not even halfway through this parable. In the story of the prodigal son, he repented, he went back to his father not knowing what would happen, certainly not expecting real forgiveness. We're not going to finish the parable obviously this morning, but the difference between this story and the truth is that this morning you can know you've been forgiven. Because Jesus, in Jesus it is finished. We do know, we, we know from the two parables preceding this, that there's joy in heaven when even one sinner repents. Beloved, if you think it's important to bring God joy, and hopefully this morning you're not here unless you think it's important that that we bring God joy, how do we bring God joy? Well, there's something simple we can do. Repent. Pray that God will grant to you the gift of repentance. And and by the way, that's not a one-time thing. Again, repentance isn't about the time you felt guilty about your sin and decided to walk an aisle and say, I believe, and get in a a tank and get dunked and become a church member. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is a life lived out for the glory of God. It is a change of the trajectory of your life where you are not king anymore but you submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, where you take up your cross daily and you follow Him. That's what all this teaching of Jesus in 12 and 13 and 14 is leading up to in 15. In 16, we're going to see the the, the high stakes of life and death and how all this leads to life and death stakes. But this morning, what do you need to be repenting of? What... To to whom do you need to turn to ask for mercy? It requires obedient faith. Repentance is inextricably bound to obedient faith. So will Jesus be your king or will you be your king? Recognize your unworthiness. Recognize your helplessness. Recognize your sin. Recognize you're a sinner and turn away from yourself and unto Christ for His glory. Let's pray. Father, show us what repentance looks like. Show us. We see it in your word, but we need your spirit to embed your word on our hearts. Embed in our minds and our hearts the picture of this prodigal son who came to the end of himself. And please grant to us the grace that comes with coming to the end of ourselves. If there is even one here, Father, this morning, not repenting, I pray you might cleanse them of all unrighteousness and make them whole. Show them mercy. Show us mercy that we don't deserve. Your Son bore your wrath for all sin, for all time, for all who will ever believe, that you might bring 
sons to glory. May you be glorified, Father, in our repentance. We ask this in the name of the one who died that we might be able to do so. Jesus Christ. Amen.